All right, we're in Romans chapter 12. We finally got to chapter 12. We've been uh, going through the sections of Romans here. And you come to this, um, this part of the book, and you actually will, as you come to this, we actually begin sort of a new focus. And as we've been going through the book of Romans, we've looked at several kind of, you can break it up into several sections. Uh, you could say this, that the first 11 chapters uh, really focus in on the doctrinal part or the uh, aspect of why we believe what we believe and all that. And then this latter part here from 12 to 16 deals with how we ought to live. And we'll look at that a little bit more here as we open up. But we have really verses or chapters 1 to 4, we, we hear about God's good news and also his bad news, okay? Romans 1 to 4 tells us we're all lost, but we're not uh, lost and left, okay? God has sent his Son, and that's Romans 5 to 8, the new life that is found in Christ. And we, we looked at Romans 5 to 8 in that. And then understanding God's plan, Romans 9 to 11, and primarily focusing in on that with uh, the Gentiles, and well, by Israel and the Gentiles, and the plan that God has for all people everywhere, the gospel. And we've looked at that. And then verses, or excuse me, again, chapters 12 to 16 deals with the transformed life. And so that's what we start tonight as we look at this latter part of the book. And I say the latter part of the book. We've been in this over a year now. We began in January of last year and uh, been going through most Sunday evenings on this book. And we still have a ways to go yet, hopefully anyways, unless uh, uh, I don't finish it for some reason or whatever else. But I will say this, that uh, Lord willing, that's our plan to continue plodding along. But I hopefully as we do this, you get a chance to look at each verse and kind of reflect on those and then remember what God has done for us and by way of uh, instruction and uh, also stirring up by way of remembrance uh, we, we hear things some are familiar some aren't but we just ask that uh, again the Lord work here for that all right I want to read down just this first verse and we won't get much further than this tonight Paul writes Romans chapter 12 verse 1 I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that you present your bodies, a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And let's ask the Lord to help us here tonight receive these words. Father, it is by your marvelous grace that you have saved us and given us new life. And thank you, Lord, for that. And Lord, as we come to this section of the book of Romans tonight, I pray that you would help um, just, again, stir up our minds and help us to understand these things not just but intellectually, but at a heart level, at a level that would produce action to our, our bodies even, Lord. And we want to pray that, uh, God, that you would just marvelously use us in the remainder of these uh, sessions as we go through and study each of these Sunday nights, Lord, on this section and the practical part of the book of Romans, that truly, Lord, it would be practical to each and every one of us in our lives. And uh, help us now as we open up the Bible as, and we ask you to, to teach us, Lord, and open up our minds to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. This is probably one of the more familiar verses of the book of Romans, and I've heard several messages over the years on this very topic. It's often a message or a verse that is used um, to encourage believers to dedicate their, themselves to the Lord's service, uh, dedicating their whole being to the Lord's service. And uh, that is definitely what this is teaching. Uh, but understand that Romans 12.1 doesn't just burst into the scene here. We have been talking now for 11 chapters on 
all the different things that God has laid out, and he establishes a certain order to things. And as we get to Romans 12, 1, it, the rest of this just makes sense based on the previous, or it should anyways. Actually, the word down further at the end of this verse where it says, which is your reasonable service, it's the same word we get in the Greek for logical, okay? And it, that's what it means. It means it's your logical service. And you'd say logic begins here in the mind, doesn't it? When you tell somebody and you convince them of something, you're using logic, right? Well, Paul has built a case for why Christ is who he is and why man is who he is and why God has a great plan and why it is only our reasonable service that we ought to serve him. And I would just echo that tonight as best I can. And certainly Paul was familiar with that. Keep in mind as we looked at these previous chapters, and I have said this many times, that good doctrine should bring about good living. And that seems to be what Paul says here in Romans 12.1. W.H. Uh, Griffith uh, Thomas explains this um, in the importance of Romans 12 to 16, and he writes in his commentary on this, After doctrine comes duty, after revelation, responsibility, after principles, practice, and after belief comes behavior, after creed becomes or comes conduct. Right thinking leads ultimately to right living. And uh, good theology is the foundation of the Christian life. And then godly Christian living naturally arises from a solid foundation. So as we've gone through the book of Romans, hopefully we've laid a little bit of a solid, hopefully a solid foundation. uh, And you understand the core beliefs of Christianity. And this book, by the way, has been central to every single revival that has ever, uh, major revivals that have been recorded in church history. And I, I say that not because I was there, all right, for any of them, um, or, you know, for, for many of them or whatever. I've seen little mini revivals here and there. But when you go back and you study the history of those, things were born out in prayer and often in the study of the book of Romans. And you say, wow, you know, is, is that, uh, you know, check that out, okay, in history. Very, very important book. And a very, um, again, as the doctrines of the faith are established and laid out in solid foundation, practice should follow and you find that everything from the reformation where now martin luther who uh, came to the book of romans and understood that you're saved by grace through faith and that was revolutionary to him it wasn't through works and here he was uh, a, a priest who was you know he he said he would pray for six or seven hours at a time get up off his knees and not know if he had prayed enough and he was bothered by that And he fasted until his cheeks caved in. And then he came to the book of Romans. And it was there in the book of Romans that he understood that you're saved by grace or you're justified by faith and faith alone in Christ. And he understood that. And of course, it really, well, at the time, split the organized church. And he came out of that. And the Reformation started in that. Um, And again, book of Romans, right? Central to that. We have a lot of that. You come to this section here and you have what is often called God's altar call. Because that's what it is. It's a call to come to an altar. Uh, An altar, by the way, is a place of sacrifice. Okay, And sometimes we uh, mischaracterize the front of a church as an altar. I always say, be careful about that. That's where I stand. That's where they usually killed things. Okay, (laughs) you know, I don't know if that's a good place. But the altar is, that's what an altar in the Old Testament was. It was a place that sacrifices were made and they were always dead sacrifices okay 
There, this is an interesting one because it says we're to be living sacrifices. Well, we'll talk about that here in a moment. But basically, everything that has uh, gone to this, um, you know, or builds up to this, and you come to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And to set this up, a little bit of background to God's call. When he, Paul writes, he says, I beseech you, or I beg you, I plead with you. Therefore, brethren, and he's talking about all Christians there, but by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. As soon as he said that word sacrifice, especially among his Jewish friends, they would have understood the Old Testament principle of sacrifice and the animal sacrifices in particular. Uh, for the Greeks that would have heard that and read that as well, they too were familiar with sacrifice because there were sacrifices that were conducted in pagan temples and rituals and all that and for various things. And, and that would have been maybe in their mind. But, but he brings it around differently than all those sacrifices because he says living sacrifice. That's distinctly different than every other sacrifice that's out there. And uh, it, it shows that really Christianity is filled with life. And it's filled with life because we have a resurrected Savior. All right? And if you think about that, in the Old Testament, especially uh, where priests were, were daily called to go and to kill bulls and goats and lambs, and they were to offer them before the Lord as an atonement for sin uh, once a year on the Day of Atonement, that had to happen for the whole people. But there were also other opportunities where uh, animals were sacrificed, and they were sacrificed in such a way they were killed, and their blood was poured out in an offering as a sacrifice to the Lord. All of those, according to the book of Hebrews, pointed to one who would come and he would put away all sacrifices and his sacrifice would be enough for once for all. And that's a good thing. I think of all the, the gallons and gallons of blood that were spilled on Jewish altars and they all pointed to Jesus Christ and they're no longer needed, those sacrifices. Once Christ died and he hung on the cross and he said, it is finished, that sacrifice was accomplished. And it was secured when he rose again on the third day. If you think about, uh, we went through the book of Hebrews, and remember Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. That's a profound statement. When the writer to the, uh, to the Hebrews, he says that, that would have rocked some people because they were still doing the sacrificial rituals that were required of them under the law. And he says this, he says, those things can never take away sin. They never can take away sin. And why? Because they fell short. They always fell short. You see, man, when he tries to come on, that was not man's plan, by the way, it was God's plan. It was a picture, a shadow of a greater to come. But often man tries to sacrifice, we think of sacrifice, and we think it always has to be something that, you know, produces loss in a way. And it produces loss in a sense that maybe somebody goes and dies. It was Osama bin Laden after the 9-11 attacks when he um, produced a video. He was actually interviewed, you know, out there hiding in his cave somewhere. And he said the difference between uh, radical Islam, and that's the term he was kind of using is Islam, uh, and everybody else, and he was referring to the United States in particular, is he says, we die for God. And he says, everywhere else, people try to live for him. And I thought, well, he's right. <laughs> and, you know, the truth is that to a radical Muslim, the idea of sacrifice is you send your sons off to die. God says, to peace sin, I'm going to send my son to die for you. 
but he won't remain dead. He doesn't call us to go die for him. He calls us to live for him. There's a big difference. And a little bit of the background on that, you have uh, that verse there, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. And again, that's, uh, I've heard people, <laughs> I heard one day a discussion with a guy who had a, a PhD, you know, a theology doctorate, and we were sitting around at a lunch table, and, and he was talking about the word, and he knew Hebrew, I mean, just wonderfully, and he says, um, he says to me, he says, you know, the word atonement, and it means a covering, and there was, that was God's way of removing sin, and I said, well, not really, removing sin. He says, well, yes, it was, that's what the word means, and I said, no. I said, the Bible says it didn't remove sin. And he said, really? And, and he, I don't know what, it, you know, he knew the Bible, and I, I just quoted this verse. And he said, oh, and he submitted to that. He said, oh, he says, I hate it when the Bible's right. And he says, <laughs> you know, things like that. And he was joking. But it's true. Sometimes we get in our heads, even after studying all the scriptures, that somehow some ritual would save us. And you know, people weren't saved in the Old Testament any differently, differently than they are saved now. They are saved based upon the trust in God, in his plan, his revealed plan. In the Old Testament, those people didn't have all the revelation of God yet. But he just said, trust me. That's all. Just trust me. Do this in obedience and somehow I will save you. And you will, when you die, you'll be able to go to heaven. I mean, that's basically the invitation from the Old Testament and even to this day. And we are saved based upon now we know the final sacrifice, the Lamb of God, right? As John one twenty nine, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Up to that point, the sin of the world could not be taken away. Uh, up until the time when Christ would go to the cross. And, and what he's saying here is, this is the final sacrifice. And here he, John proclaims that prophetically. Because just three years later, less than that, Christ would die and the same one that John identifies, the very first words that identify Messiah, you know, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, identify why he came. He came to die for us and take away sin. And the word lamb certainly would have brought that up in somebody's mind because that's what they did with lambs at the, under the law, right? They had to die. <clears throat> the word uh, that is used... Um, uh, Talking about God's lamb there for our sins, the word translated take away is used elsewhere. And it's the same phrase that is used when the stone was rolled away. Remember the command to roll the stone away uh, when Jesus was in the tomb or they thought he was in the tomb. He was risen already, right? And you find there in, in that case, uh, the same thing, the deliverance that is required or is offered through uh, what Jesus does. He rolls away our sin. He takes it, he removes it, he blots it out forever, he covers it completely, and he throws it as far as the east is to the west, right? And uh, all those things are terms that are used. And I think of that because that's a distinctly different um, means of, of salvation in that way. Uh, by the way, there's, you know, those that uh, don't believe in the term, well, we, we often call ourselves dispensationalists. In other words, that uh, a dispensation is that in, in God's planning and the way he revealed himself, he interacts differently at different times with man, okay? Different dispensations. And uh, I, there are people that say there's no such thing. There's always been just this one way and all that. And I say, well, 
everybody's a dispensationalist unless you brought a, a lamb to church this morning, you know, uh, because that has passed away, all right, that requirement under the law. And God changed his, didn't change the plan ultimately, but he changed the way he revealed it to man. And there was a different dispensation that occurred in that time. And that's part of this, and it's not particularly part of our study here tonight, but uh, I would say to people, I'm a dispensationalist based on not only that, but many times where God has covenanted with his people and he's changed things um, in the way he, he reacts or interacts, I should say. And that does not mean God changes in his character either in that. Um, but it's interesting that every other religion in the world says, go and do this and you'll live or you'll find eternal life or happiness or whatever. And there's a requirement to do something. And here, there is no requirement to do something. When you look at the verse, when he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, mercy is that uh, extension of, of God saying, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. And it is by his mercy that we're not consumed, right? He says that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The only thing we have to do is show up and present ourselves. Um, now, there's more to it, obviously, living in the holy life, and there's certainly a struggle with that. But it is reasonable, all right? It is not unreasonable. Every other religion out there says, go and, and do something. And really, Christ says, it is done. It is done. And the, the fact that you can rest in that tonight, not just in your mind, but in your bodies and practicing that and saying, I can rest in the fact that I am where I am right now, in my life, in time, whatever, not just sitting here in church, but say, in these circumstances, and that the Lord has said it is finished, it is done, it is accomplished. There are lots of other people than, you know, I again point back to Islam. Uh, it's on the topic of many people's you know, minds and conversations and whatnot. And I have dialogued with Muslims before. I've gone to mosques to talk to a mosque, not mosque, but a mosque there to talk to some of them. And, and I asked a lot of questions. And I'm always amazed, you know, to go into a mosque and pray um, on like their Friday night prayers. Uh, you would have to go in and the first thing you'd have to do is take your shoes off. All right. And you don't enter a mosque with, a, with shoes on. That's not a good thing. And so you, you would do that, and you would leave your shoes, okay? Uh, you can leave your shoes on tonight, just so you know. Uh, but then, and I'm not making light of it, but there, there are rituals. They have to do these things. And then you come further, and then you would go to um, kind of a, a lavatory area. And it's, by the way, separated between men and women, so they don't intermingle in this area. And you would go, and you would wash your hands, and you wash your feet. Because you can't go to prayer without washing your hands and your feet. And if you have done other things, like also they wash their face. And if uh, you've gone to the bathroom during the day, anything like that, you have to wash sometimes other things. Okay. And, and those things. And those are all available. to Now, they don't often do that in the West as much. But in other places, very much a ritual of ceremonial washings. And then you, you would go to prayer. Okay. And when you go to prayer, you had to begin your process of doing exactly what Muhammad did. And so they begin their prayers in a standing posture with their arms crossed. And then they go through different actions. And you do those actions. You have to. 
You cannot pray. And by the way, you always face Mecca, all right? So if you go to a mosque today and walk in, it doesn't matter if, it's a, if it was built intentionally as a mosque, it'll be oriented towards Mecca in a way that they, the whole building points that way. If, you, if they use another building, like if they were to come in and use our building for something, I'm not saying they are. No, they aren't going to. But uh, if they came in, they would know exactly where Mecca is according to the compass, and they would paint probably lines on the floor so that people could line up and pray in that direction. And in a mosque, that's what they'll have, and they'll do that. And there's a lot of doing. And yet, honestly, I can tell you this, in some ways, it's, it's somewhat easier. Because all you really have to do is play by the rules. And as long as you play by the rules, it doesn't matter what your heart's really about. It doesn't really matter about what your mind is, is about. It's, uh, you know, hopefully focusing, as they say, focusing on Allah, God. Uh, and, and they try to do that. But, but there's a doing, and there's always action. It's all about actions. And we taught that, went through that, and there are the five pillars of Islam, right? You have to uh, say certain words, and you have to be said in Arabic. That's the, the language that God uses, according to them. And they have to, you have to say those, those, the creed, essentially, the shahada. Uh, you, you have to be able to give tithes or monies, I guess. It's not really 10%, it's 2.5% of everything. Uh, you have to be able to, if able and allowed, go to Mecca once in your lifetime on a pilgrimage. And there are, there are many, many different things that you would do. And, and there's Ramadan, fasting and stuff. They practice that. That has to occur. There's the praying uh, three times a day. Or really up to five times a day, but three times. And then there's also uh, the sixth pillar, which often is, uh, you know, depends on what you believe but it's jihad which is a struggle and it means uh, a holy struggle and so some muslims take that to mean you go out and physically struggle to spread islam which is really what is mostly understood in islam and i say all that because it's all about doing i'm not picking on them i'm not but really it's not a whole lot different than others that would say well i'm a christian but they don't really rest in the fact that christ has saved them or has offered a way of salvation but rather they're trying to earn their way to heaven and so they go to church, or they pray a certain posture, or they stand, kneel, sit, whatever, at the right times, or they say certain rote prayers, and the heart doesn't really even change, or whatever. You add it to the same thing. It's not any different. In some ways, it's easier, because as long as you pay, play by the rules. But Jesus turns around, and he says, come unto me, all you that are heavy laden, and, and he says, and I will give you rest. He's not referring to just comfort now. He's talking about eternal rest. But he's, the fact that we can rest in the finished work of Christ. I don't have to do anything tonight to be saved or earn my salvation. Uh, I have made that transaction by faith in trusting Christ prior. But, but I would say this, that it's done and he holds it and he keeps it. And I can rest in that. But he does ask me to live for him and to be a living sacrifice. Warren Worsby says the problem with a living sacrifice is that it can crawl off the altar. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Sometimes he does. You know, Jack Karen thinks he's doing okay, and all of a sudden he crawls off the altar, and he wants to live for himself. That's, that's not good. And it also implies that it's possible, right, if you're a living sacrifice. Dead sacrifice couldn't do that, but a living sacrifice can. And uh, again, the Lord is in control, uh, or ha- has settled these things, but he, he is... Uh, doesn't leave us alone in that think of all the things people try to do to be saved and yet religion really is based on doing but true 
faith in Christ is based upon the, the reality. It's done. It's done. You have the, uh, the essence of this call. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Um, there was a problem in Paul's day, and there's still a problem in our day, and it's this, that we kind of make light of, uh, well, we make, make a lot about our eternal destiny, and the, 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 the spirit and the soul, we say, you know, my soul is in Christ, and I'm going to heaven, but we don't focus on the other part, which is this body that we live in. And God is as concerned about our bodies as He is about our souls, our spirit, the non-material part of us, he is just as concerned. And in Paul's day, there was a group that came along and they argued that, well, sin resides in the natural body, therefore God won't, you know, he doesn't care about that. And then there were some that either tried to deny the body all pleasures, so they locked themselves up in monasteries, and monasticism arose in the first century, and, you know, people would lock themselves up and they would not have any interaction with the world or as little as possible so that they would not be tempted all right that's one way all right that you try to overcome things the other group said well the body doesn't really matter so like let's eat drink and be merry and you know tomorrow we'll die and we'll go to heaven well both of those are mistaken paul writes this to correct some of that and saying that you are now your body all right is part of the plan and in your flesh you are to serve god and there are a number of verses that deal with that. Um, I'll, I'll quickly run down through these here, I think, anyways. See if I can see where they, they begin. Uh, move ahead one more. Here we go. Psalm 139, 13. And you know this verse, but it says, For you formed my inward parts, and you covered me in my mother's womb. And he says this, I will praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. And then he goes on, he says, Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written, and the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. You know what it says there is that God saw us even before we were formed in the womb, before we were conceived, he still knew us and he knew our very substance. I don't know how much of that, you know, I'm thinking about that, but he knows every piece of, of material that is in us, all the quadrillions of atoms and everything else that make us who we are. He knows our substance and he knew it before we were even formed. But you see, the focus is on our substance. On our bodies, our, even when we're in the womb. And I think that verse is often used when people talk about um, the sanctity of human life in the womb. Well, the psalmist said God knew the, womb, the, the, the body. He knew exactly who we were. And even before we, anybody else saw us in that. Uh, another verse, 1 Corinthians 6.19. Paul writes here, and the Corinthians had a problem with what I was talking about previously. Some of them were having great, you know, they were just uh, living very sinful lives. They were believers, and they were carnal, though. And Paul writes to correct some of that, and he says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Big thing right there, that God resides within us, in our flesh, all right? God the Holy Spirit. 
And he seals us and he takes up residence within us. And he's not limited to me. I'm glad, you know, for sure. But I would say this, that's an important thing. And by the way, that is a distinctive that is after Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And it is unique to the church age that the Holy Spirit is in the believer. In the Old Testament times and before that, uh, the Spirit of God could come to somebody and reside with them, on them, in them, I guess, whatever, and then go and leave. That's why David could say, Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit or thy Spirit from me. Um, he could pray that prayer. In, the, in our dispensation, we can grieve the Spirit, we can quench the Spirit, but He cannot be removed entirely. And that's good. He seals us. Unique to the church, by the way. The Bride of Christ. Um, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty three, For this corruptible, that's the body, right? Must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. What's Paul talking about? That's the end of the chapter on the resurrection. That even when this body goes back to the earth and to dust, he's still going to have a plan for it and raise it up. And this fleshly part of us will have to be put off first, but he has a plan for it. He doesn't leave it. That's why it's important to him. Philippians 3.21 Who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. He's referring to Christ who's going to take us and he's going to take this body that we're in now which I don't care who you are, how strong you are, how healthy you are right now, it will eventually fail, okay? Uh, it will. <laughs> you know, I look at Arnold Schwarzenegger, okay? And uh, he, he, you know, he's the man that when I was growing up, and he was the muscle man, right, everybody? But now he doesn't look so muscular, okay? I mean, he's still in good shape and as far as I know and all that, but he doesn't, you know, he, he's going downhill. Don't tell him that, but you know. But you know what? The body fades away. And yet, he's got a way to conform it someday for the believer into his glorious body. That means I'm going to be given a body like his. I'm thinking about that, you know. What's that going to be like? Um, I don't know fully. I mean, some of it we just have to leave. But when we think about Jesus in his post-resurrected state, he was able to sit and eat meals, but yet didn't have to, right? He was able to walk through walls and doors that were locked and be right there. And yet he was flesh and bone, substance. Thomas and others could feel his wounds and touch him. And he had, he had being, substance to him. Yet he was not bound by this world like we are. Are the believers, are believers all believers going to be like that? Well, I, I think so. I would throw that out as something to think about. I don't think we're going to be worried about walking through walls. Things like that will be in his presence with him, focused on him. But think of all those. And I, I thought about that. The marriage supper of the Lamb. It says it's a supper. Man, we like to eat. I don't know what it's going to be there, but you know what? It's going to be good. Christ has prepared it. And when He makes things, He makes it perfect. And we aren't going to necessarily have to eat in heaven, but I think you'll be able to eat in heaven. You'll be able to drink. He offers us to come drink of that water. You know, Is that physical? Uh, well, there's an aspect of the body that will be raised up and be reunited with our non-material parts for eternity, and it'll be different. He's going to make it a glorious body, like His. First Corinthians 4.10, or 2 Corinthians 4.10, excuse me. 
Paul writes there, he says, always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our bodies. Paul is writing there of, of the things that we carry around now, and he's talked about it in the book of Romans also. We struggle with whatever that comes our way. Sometimes it's our own inherent sin. We struggle with um, the 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 aspect of living in a sinful world and our bodies are going that way too. It's perishing, all right? The outward man is perishing. And he says, I'm always caring about the body of the dying of the Lord. When you get up in the morning and, you know, you go, oh, that hurts, all right? Some of you do that, maybe. I don't know. I've reached that stage, I think. I get up and, oh, that didn't feel right, you know? It would feel better to stay in bed, but it hurts there too, you know? <laughs> you just got to go... I'm bearing, I'm bearing the dying of the Lord Jesus in my body. Because you know what? He at Calvary bore my sins. He took death upon himself. All the pain and suffering and everything. So every time you have a little pain or a big pain or whatever, you can just say, thank you, Lord. It's a reminder that someday it's not going to be like this. Someday you're going to remove it. Because that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our bodies. How is it going to be manifested in our bodies? Well, it can begin now. We can live a holy life. We can live a life that's different. Instead of going out and abusing our bodies and sinful practices, we can say, okay, I'm going to live for the Lord in the strength He's given me today. Whatever strength or weakness that is. But ultimately, even this body that fails for the Christian, you know, because it does, and we do abuse our bodies still, you know. And I will say this, that someday it'll be manifested differently. The life of the Lord Jesus will be seen. That's why he says in Romans 12, 1, that you may be a living sacrifice. It's all about life, isn't it? 2 Corinthians 5.10 Now this shows that there'll be some measure of judgment. And this is the, the bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, where the bema, the, the word that is used there, was a, a reward that was handed out like at the Olympic Games or other uh, competitions. A judge would sit on the bema seat so this isn't called this isn't the great white throne judgment that's different that's where sinners are condemned for eternity our sin has been paid for but there will be rewards handed out to the believer and how you lived with what you were given all right and how you lived in this body of yours and it will be rewarded or not he says for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body. That's a reward, okay? According to what he has done, whether good or bad. You know, I think of that because there are people like my friend Steve Wagstaff, who's in a wheelchair. He's been in a wheelchair since he's been 18 years old when he, had a, 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 he became a quadriplegic, you know? His very limited use of his limbs, his upper limbs, his legs, he has no use. And, and he doesn't feel anything in his hands, but he can use them a little bit. And I think of that because Steve, when we were teaching, when I was at MBBI, and, and he's still there, and he's the dean of men, um, and, you know, Steve would wheel himself to school, you know, get in his van, you know, get over there, get out. And the amount of time it took him to get ready to just show up for work was probably about an hour and a half. He lived about five, five minutes away. But just to get himself out of bed, cleaned up, get clothed, all that. His wife would help him. And, I mean, sometimes it took me that long, but, I mean, I'm sitting there having a coffee, and, you know, I'm wondering, oh, boy, I'm feeling a little tired, didn't sleep well, things like that. And I'd see Steve show up, and I wonder how Steve, you know, I'm not, I hope, I hope I'm not jumping ahead of him, but I, 
you know, I think there's a reward for him. Because <laughs> he's had very limited use of his body, and yet the little bit of use he has, he's given it to the Lord. We've got to do that in our strengths and our weaknesses, right? 2 Corinthians 7.1 Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from the all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You know, Paul writes these two letters to the Corinthian church. They were a, a new church, and I've talked about Corinth before when we were looking at our, our study on that. It was a place that was a very decadent city. You pretty much could get caught up in all kinds of sinful things. And for the Christians, they were living in that city. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't take much to look like you're, you're living for the Lord when you're living in a terrible world that's so sinful, right? Just a little bit goes a long ways. But now Paul says, no, you know, cleanse yourself entirely. Remove the impurities. All filthiness. And he says, of the flesh and spirit. Not just the spirit, but the flesh too. And that means that we, we have to continue that. He's talking about perfecting or completing holiness in the fear of God. I think we've, in many ways, lost that sense of the awe of who God is. And when we lose, if you lose the sense of who really God is in His holiness and who He really is, you will just say, why fight? You know, it doesn't really matter. It does matter. That's why Paul says it's our logical service. Romans 8.13, we already read this. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. See, when you really, 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 really believe what is true, what the Scripture lays out, then you'll do something different. You'll do something about the impurities that come. And not, I'm not talking about just you know, uh, causing our body uh, purposeful pain for penance and all that stuff. That's, people do that, thinking that somehow they're offsetting their sin. That's just, that's again, back to works. That's Hinduism. That's all that is. And uh, Hinduism borrows it from the garden in Genesis 3. Um, Romans 6, 12 to 13. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey in it in its lusts. And then he says, uh, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. See, there it is, the living sacrifice, right? Alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, I realize nobody does this perfectly. I mean that. I, I think, and by the way, it doesn't come overnight, right? Nor, nor does running like the Boston Marathon, all right? You know, if you never were a runner in your life, you, you can't just jump in and run a marathon, all right? Uh, I don't care who's chasing you. You're not going to make it, you know? Uh, but yet, it's interesting. I remember watching a special on TV a few years ago, and uh, there were like 15 people or so, and they were at various stages of physical health, some very poor physical health. And in nine months, I think all but like three of them finished the Boston Marathon in nine months of training. But it took time. It took time. You, you don't just wake up one day and say, I'm a spiritual giant and all my sins are dealt with. Guess what? It's a struggle and it's a daily showing up and saying, I'm going today to live for the Lord. And days, a succession of days goes into years and a succession of years turns into a lifetime. And then we have eternity to live with the Lord. And I think that's part of the secret there, to present our members, to, to show up, Right?
Philippians 1.20, the end of that verse, he says, So now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. The great thing about the Christian is we win either way. You know, we win either way. Uh, whether you're a Christian athlete who's out there in the prime of your life and, and you're serving God in your strengths, or whether you're someone who's fading away and you're in a nursing home and you have very little strength. You realize that we present ourselves as part of what God has. And whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's, right? 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul says, But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Oh, that's a verse that we ought to put up you know, somewhere where we see it regularly. The word for, for discipline means I beat my body. Now that's different. And it is a picture of buffeting the body, like a boxer who trains and they spar. Uh, a guy who doesn't, you know, take a punch very often doesn't isn't able to take a punch very often. But a boxer, someone who's always, you know, sparring, they they build up, you know, calluses and muscle and tone, and and they can take a punch when others can't, you know. And Paul uses that same term there. He says, "I I buffet my body, I discipline it," and. What does that mean? And I don't think it meant that Paul was out there beating himself with a whip and causing bleeding and things like that. Some have taken that idea and run with it. But he's saying, I discipline it. I'm not going to let my body do that when it wants to do this or take that and do that. I'm going to discipline myself. And the word discipline isn't, we don't like it, do we? I don't. (laughs) But it's necessary. It has to be done. You know why? Because it says, when I've preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. That's something I fear. I fear in my own walk. I, I say, Lord, do not let me do something that would disqualify me, especially after I've told people the truth. Because what will happen, it will discredit you, Lord. And we ought to continually pray that we remain faithful and true and then do something about it. Not just pray about it, but do something about it. i got to quit here. I know my time's elapsed, but... 1 Thessalonians 4.4 4, That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. This is important. And it's an area, honestly, that Christians just ignore a lot of times. And in this day and age we live, um, and by the way, it's a struggle. And you know what? Every single one of us struggle in the body, in the flesh. And it does not mean you're out if you've struggled in areas, whatever they may be. There's lots of different ways. But I will say this. Face it head on and fight it and the Lord is with you. And you say, well, why should I? Because it's our logical, our reasonable service, right? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And I think of that, you know, say, well, how can I do that? How can I just, uh, you know, what are ways I can do this? Practical steps. Get up in the morning. Or wherever you get up. Some of you work at night. (laughs) Get up in the night. Whatever it is. But when you're at your first waking moment, stop and say, all right, I dedicate my ears to you today, Lord. My eyes. My mind. Go right down the body. You know? My heart. My hands. I, I dedicate my private parts to you, Lord. You know? That area. The sexuality. We are awash in it in a mess of perversion in our society. And the most of society doesn't even see it that way they say it's all it's it's all acceptable 
For the believer, it's different. Our, our feet, where are your feet going to take you today? All of those things are dedicated to the Lord. He says, that's your flesh. It's your reasonable service, especially after what he's done for us, right? And I hope I'm not, I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on anybody. Tonight. I'm just saying this should free us to live for him. And that's my prayer that we would, okay? Let's pray. Our God, I, I thank you tonight that we have your word and your revealed word. And Lord, you want us to be, you want us to be uh, really useful for you here in the flesh. And Lord, I pray, I pray you'd gird up the loins of our mind and help us, Lord, in our eyes that we would not be drawn to things that would entice us away from you. I pray, Lord, for our mouths and our ears that they would be used for you, Lord. I pray for uh, the fact that our heart, our mind would be singular in purpose. That, Lord, our hands would be used for your glory. To help others and to, to present Christ and to flip through the pages of Scripture and all these things, Lord, they'd be used for you. Our feet would take us to places that would further your kingdom. And Lord, I thank you again that it is our reasonable service to do so for all you've done for us. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.